This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So in the future, again, my focus always returns to medical implants because I think one of the biggest trends that we see in medicine today is this idea of precision medicine or personalized medicine. The fact that, you know, we all know from lived experience that a few different cancer patients can, can go into a clinic and get, you know, essentially the same therapy and some people respond really well and some other people don't. Again, it goes back to this idea of biological variability. So rather than giving everyone the same medicine, you know, why not give an implant that can maybe generate the sort of uh, chemicals that they need in their body, um, but that senses that this person needs a little bit more at this time or that person doesn't. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus. Now, if I asked you to build a robot, the first materials you would probably reach for would be some metal bits and plastic bobs. However, mechanical engineer Ritu Rahman designs machines made with biological material and has created all manner of wonderful machines, including a walking robot made with muscle tissue. In this week's episode of the Science Focus podcast, she talks to online assistant Sarah Rigby about how to integrate biology into engineering and what these remarkable devices can do that traditional machines can't. So in a few words, could you please just describe what it is that you study? Sure. Um, so I'm a mechanical engineer, and typically you think of mechanical engineers as people who build machines or some kind of device using materials like metals or ceramics or plastics. Um, and I basically add another set of materials into the toolbox and think about whether we can start building machines using biological materials like living cells. Um, so one example of a biological machine that I've built is a robot that uses living skeletal muscle to move and walk around. And I show that, you know, machines that incorporate biological materials can do pretty interesting things. Like, you know, when you fall down and cut your skin, you heal. When you exercise, you get stronger. And it turns out that these robots can do the same thing. When they exercise, they can get stronger and they can also heal from damage. 
So what do you use these biohybrid uh, machines for? That is the ultimate question. So, you know, a lot of times when you're doing uh, this kind of very exploratory research, which is what I did during my PhD at the University of Illinois, the, the work on these robots, a lot of what we were trying to do is just discover what are the design rules and principles of building with biological materials. You know, I, you know, building a car is a, a complex mechanism, but for the most part, most trained mechanical engineers can do all or some part of that. They know, you know, approximately this stiffness of a steel beam is going to take this much force or a motor that I construct in this way is going to produce um, this much energy and consume this much energy. Um, so you have all of these numbers kind of in place and getting those design rules and principles in place took us thousands of years. Um, so a lot of what I'm trying to do um, in my initial work is develop what those rules and principles are for building the biological materials. Um, and my focus is to think about whether we can make um, robots, implantable devices um, that integrate living biological materials and integrate with our bodies so that they can do things um, like sense what's going on in an individual system, you know, in response to, say, a disease um, and adapt to their environment the way that biological materials are trained to do. So what... Uh, benefits do biological machines have over just metal and plastic? So why can't you why can't you just build a metal and plastic machine mm -hmm. that could learn from its environment, like with artificial intelligence or something like that? Yeah, um, you know I think there's a place for. Uh, innovation using lots of different kinds of materials. So I think there are some places, for example, inside the body in particular, where there's a strong case for using biological materials because they're designed to optimally function in that environment, right? So they are soft, they function really well in human environments that are at 37 degrees C. Um, they operate at the pH that, you know, the particular environment that they're placed in are. Um, and so there's a lot of different things where they're already designed to function in this environment, and they also have all of these adaptive capabilities that, that synthetic materials don't have. And certainly, we've gone some way with synthetic materials. You know, with, there are some composite materials that, if you scratch them, might be able to seal that scratch. Um, and that exists, but it's never as strong as it was before. And if you repeatedly scratch the same spot, it gets worse and worse and worse, which doesn't happen to your skin, right? Like, you might have fallen and hurt your knee when you were five, and if you did that again now, um, Maybe it'd take a little bit longer because, you know, we're all a little bit older, uh, but it's still going to heal and it's going to return the skin to its original condition, which it wouldn't necessarily do um, in some of those kinds of materials. And similarly with AI, um, we made a ton of progress in, in being able to develop machines that can process a lot of different signals and, and compute a pretty complex response and maybe even learn or adapt. Um, but we're still very, very, very far um, from what you know, the human brain or brains in general uh, can do in terms of processing a lot of different types of signals and making complex uh, decisions or functional behaviors. Uh, so I think there's a place, right? So I, if you're looking at which is what, you know, my interest level is in implantable devices. So if you're looking at something, what can I put inside the body um, that's safe, that can adapt to its environment, and that I can engineer in some way to have a predictive functional response? Uh, I still think there's a strong case to be made that biological materials are your best answer. So why not just use all biological materials? Is there still a place for metal and plastic? Yes, um, absolutely. So I think it's, again... I used to, when I was younger, <laughs> uh, talk about this as building with biology. I was very obsessed with the idea of building with biology, and to an extent, I still am. Um, you know, because I was like, 
it's the holy grail. They can adapt to their environment. They can, you know, there's a reason our whole world is made out of biological materials. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And, and to an extent it is. But uh, since then, I've switched to this idea of biohybrid design or building with biology as well as other things. And the reason why I think this is important is that we've built a really fantastic array of synthetic materials to work with. You know, we have materials that are so strong um, yet so light. Uh, we have things that can resist, you know, insane amounts of corrosion. Uh, we've developed all of these technologies and there's no reason to throw all of that away. Um, it's just a question of adding a set of materials in this case, biological materials, to every engineer's toolbox and thinking for the specific environment that you're designing and for the specific functional application that you're designing, does it make sense to add uh, living cells from an animal or an insect or a plant um, that might be able to satisfy this um, and either do it better or do it cheaper, faster, or more sustainably? So specifically, what sort of biological materials do you use in these machines? Is it like living tissue like you'd find in a human body? Uh, kind of similar. So uh, let's stick with the example of the, the walking robot, for example. Um, so when we are trying to make skeletal muscle that acts as an actuator that makes this robot walk, uh, we design something that kind of looks like a rubber band. Um, so we have this sort of mold or a 3D printer, and we pattern cells and a mixture of different proteins that mimic their natural environment uh, into this ring-like shape. And what this looks like at that point is kind of, uh, if you've ever made any kind of gelatin-based dessert or jello, it's kind of right before it's about to gel. It's kind of this like gooey mixture. You can pattern it into a bunch of different shapes and then it sets right? Um, so that's the same thing that happens with these tissues. They essentially set into that ring-like shape. And then because the cells are alive when they go through this process, um, they're sensing and responding to their environment. So the way skeletal muscle works um, in our bodies, for example, is there are individual cells that fuse together to form these long fibers or muscle fibers. And that muscle fiber is what's generating force and producing motion. When we stack a bunch of those in parallel, like in our legs or our arms, we can generate pretty large forces. Um, so we can do the same thing with these tissues. What happens is the cells proliferate, they reproduce, um, they get in touch with each other in this ring-like construct, and they fuse to form fibers within that construct. So they essentially remodel their environment and then create the tissue that can generate force and produce motion. Um, and once you get to that point, you can essentially take that muscle ring, which is contractile or can produce force in response to a stimulus. Um, and you can put it around what we call a skeleton, which is really just like a flexible exoskeleton um, that can produce different types of motion. So we focus on something that has two legs and a flexible beam between them. And around those two legs, we wrap this muscle. And every time the muscle contracts, um, it's able to deform that skeleton and the robot sort of inches forward, kind of like an inchworm. It like walks or crawls across the surface. Wow. So you said, I think, that essentially you have living cells and then you pipe them into a shape and the living cells, they form the actual structure themselves. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, so uh, how do you, where do you actually get these cells from? Because, I mean, I can understand in the human body, like yeah. the cells reproduce themselves, but, you know, how, how do you create them or where do you get them from? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll actually clarify one point about how they remodel their environment and then I'll talk about uh, where they come from. Mm -hmm. So 
in essence, yes, the cells are sensing and responding to their environment and creating the contractile fibers by themselves. But we do provide external cues to guide that transition, both mechanical and biological and chemical. Um, so the the robots or the tissue essentially is sitting in a liquid bath. Um, that liquid bath has a lot of different sugars and proteins and amino acids. Um, and you can sort of alter that composition to tell it, you know, proliferate a lot, like reproduce a lot and make a bunch of individual cells or start fusing these individual cells into the fiber format, you're done proliferating. Um, and similarly with the mechanical stimulus, you know, if you stretch the tissues, we found that if you, if you don't stretch the tissues, these fibers will form, but they'll form kind of all willy-nilly, like not really in any particular alignment or order. So even if they are contracting, they're not contracting um, in the same direction. And so you don't really see a net response. Um, so you can do things like if you stretch the tissue during this process of growth and differentiation, all of the fibers form um, in the same direction. And so when they generate force individually, they act as a unit and you can see really observable contractions. So it's a little bit of self-guided and a little bit of uh, external cues, all of which would be naturally provided if that were happening inside the body of a living being, but we have to um, create differently inside the lab. Um, as to the question of where these cells come from, most of the time when you're building with living cells, um, you can have a few different cell sources or types of cells that you can derive from. Um, I would say the three sort of primary um, types of cells are primary cells, which are cells that you extract from a living animal. Um, so they have the advantage of um, being very close to the natural tissue. If you take skeletal muscle tissue from the skeletal muscle of a rat, for example, um, the tissue that you engineer using those cells is going to look very similar to skeletal muscle. Um, but this is problematic for a variety of different reasons, right? It's not a very sustainable thing to do because it would require sacrificing an animal every time that you wanted to do something. Or maybe you just take a biopsy and it's not that big of a deal, but there's still some ethical considerations related to that. Um, and there's also some reliability constraints. I mean, we all know that not all humans are the same. And probably if I took some muscle from myself and some muscle from you, uh, it wouldn't act the same way. Um, and similarly, if you're trying to think about making a robot, uh, you want a pretty reliable cell source. So taking something from different animals might result in very different issues. So we chose not to do um, primary cells. Um, what we did choose to use is something called uh, an immortalized cell line. Um, so this is something, a very useful tool that a lot of um, biologists and engineers use in their research. Essentially, there's some type of cell that's been harvested at some point from a biopsy, say from an animal or, or maybe even a human being, maybe their tumor. Um, and we've they just happen to grow very well on a Petri dish, right? And we're able to keep them alive for many, many generations. We can freeze them down when we don't need them, thaw them and keep growing them. So they can reproduce for multiple um, cycles in the lab. And so they are very useful tools for sort of building with biology and they work really well. Um, and the last type of, you know, main cell that people use to build are stem cells. Um, I think most of the time when people think of stem cells, um, they probably think of something that's derived embryonically, um, and it really doesn't have to be. So there's uh, 
a whole bunch of research around induced pluripotent stem cells. So stem cells are cells that rather than taking something that's a muscle cell, you start with something that can turn into muscle or skin or bone, um, and you differentiate it along a path that leads it to muscle. So they're very powerful cells. Um, and somebody uh, discovered, you know, about 10 years ago, a really robust protocol where you can just kind of scrape some skin uh, cells off of your body and reprogram them to return to a stem cell-like state, and then redifferentiate them back into something that looks like muscle. Um, so if that sort of muscle differentiation technology had existed or been as robust or mature as it was, as it is now, as it had been when I started my PhD eight years ago, I would probably have used those cells instead of an immortalized cell line. Um, because that way you can, you know, if you're thinking about one day putting some sort of engineered muscle inside a person's body, you don't want them to have an immune response to it. So you want it to be as similar to the cells in their body as possible. And if you could just scrape some skin cells from them and turn that into muscle and then create something that you put inside them, that would be the safest and, and easiest way to do that. So those are kind of the broad classes of where the cells can come from. Right, I see. Um, and so is this is that a problem that you, you encounter a lot with uh, these sorts of using these biological materials is them um, interacting with the body like I could imagine if, it, if there was you know something that you swallow I could imagine uh, uh, organic material would be more likely to interact with you know stomach acid or something like that mm -hmm. yeah no it's it's a great point that you mentioned biological materials you know they have a, a lot of positives um, but there's also a significant range of I'd say they're just kind of finicky you know, like they're, they have to operate at a certain pH and temperature and humidity and air composition, and there have to be certain sugars and proteins available to them. And they have to be cultured um, around biocompatible materials. And if you put them inside of a body, they have to be compatible with the body um, in which they're placed. Um, so you actually raise an excellent point about the stomach, for example. Um, you know, I recently wrote a paper um, with a gastrointestinal surgeon, uh, and our initial problem was something like, you know, he, he does a lot of surgeries for people suffering with obesity. Uh, so if you're struggling with obesity, one potential way to deal with that is to place a bariatric balloon inside your stomach. And this is exactly what it sounds like. It's a balloon that takes up space in your stomach. It makes you feel full. Uh, you don't eat as much, and it helps you lose weight. So if you have, you know, something like this, um, this could potentially help you um, lose weight over time and, and, and deal with that process. Uh, but right now, these balloons are placed endoscopically for the most part and also removed endoscopically for the most part. And an endoscope, you know, is like that giant tube that they have to sort of put you under and, and stick down your body. Not a very pleasant process and also not a very cheap process. Um, and so the surgeon was asking me, you know, you work with a lot of materials that can adapt to their environment. So could you make a balloon that when we don't need it anymore, or the patient has responded to therapy or doesn't want to do this therapy anymore, rather than doing an endoscopy, we could just remove it from the patient's body. Um, and initially, um, you know, he had heard about the work that I had done with these sort of biological robots before. And was like, you know, why don't we use something like that to do it? Um, and I think eventually you could do something like that if you, you know, create an exoskeleton or something for these uh, muscle actuators. Um, but since that technology didn't exist yet, I was like, well, you know, at some point the skeletal muscle is just kind of like meat. Um, and so it's just going to be digested up by the muscle probably before it can do, by the stomach, but probably before it can do anything useful. 
Um, so instead, what I ended up doing is designing a new synthetic material um, that sort of takes uh, inspiration from biology and from nature um, and systems that degrade or respond to light in some way. So I made a new type of polymer that breaks down when you shine light on it. Um, and we made the balloon out of that material. We sealed it with that material such that you could swallow the balloon, it would expand in your stomach, and then when you wanted it to break down, um, you could swallow an LED pill that shines light on the balloon, causes that to break down, and then you essentially just pass it out the way you would um, pass food in general. So, you know, that's, I think, a great example of this idea of biohybrid design. There are times when biological materials make a ton of sense, and there are times when smart synthetic materials make a ton of sense. And you kind of just have to pick what works best for uh, a particular application. Right, wow. Um, so what else might you use biohybrid design for? Is it all medical? Uh, but no, I, you know, I, I certainly don't think it's all medical. I think my personal interest is medical, and so I focus on a lot of those applications. And as a result, most of the time when I build with cells, I build with cells derived from mammals because they we're mammals and they function in the environment that yeah, we've created. Um, however, there are a few other people in this biohybrid design or biohybrid robotics space, and there's folks that focus on a lot of different types of materials. So they might use cells derived from insects, for example, which actually function um, pretty well at room temperature, um, and they function really well um, you know, even in air, not necessarily always needing to be immersed in a liquid medium. So for those sorts of, um, if you were thinking of maybe having an untethered robot that could say, um, you know, move in our ambient environment, either to, uh, you know, work in a factory or perhaps, you know, be going in a water stream to sense a source of pollution and, and neutralize whatever toxin it was in that environment. All these sort of like outdoorsy robotics applications, um, that's the sort of thing where you might want to think about using cells from insect or maybe cells from bacteria. Um, and those are all certainly very valid and useful applications. I think from my perspective, it's just such a huge field um, and there's so few people in it. Though in a way we've sort of self-selected into little niches and bubbles. Um, so I'm, you know, the skeletal muscle person, I'm the mammal person, um, but there's other people that focus on different applications. How do you go about designing and testing one of these machines? Mm -hmm. So in, in some ways, it's very similar to how you design and build uh, anything in an engineering context and in, with some added difficulties or, or quirks, as it were. Um, so, you know, for example, for uh, the robots, you know, a lot of times when you are designing or using an actuator in an engineering context, um, you're basically looking at what is the energy source? Um, how much energy does it take to produce a certain amount of force? Uh, how reliably can you do it? Uh, and what's the efficiency of that process? So it's pretty much the same for skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle is very similar to a lot of, you know, a pneumatic actuator or a shape memory alloy-based actuator. You have a certain volume, you know it produces linear actuation, just contract, relax, contract, relax. And you have to turn that into rolling or gripping or anything else. So you know the approximate size constraints, you know how much force you want to generate, you know how much energy you want, and you build a system the same way that you would build with a synthetic material um, and follow the sort of typical engineering design, build, test, reiterate, do that over and over again until you optimize for a certain amount of function and 
price and efficiency and whatnot. Um, so all of that is, is pretty much the same. What's different, I would say, is that biology has inherently just more variability. Um, and it's a little bit more of a black box. And both of those things might be problems that are problems right now because we're still have a long way to go in understanding these systems. Um, and maybe some of them are problems that will persist. So I would say, you know, when you're, I'm a mechanical engineer, as I mentioned, and, you know, when I was in classes, we would go and we'd say, you know, here's a bunch of different steels that were, you know, manufactured at different factories, but like using the same recipe, like go test them for, uh, their stiffness and see how it is. And sure, are you going to see some variability between samples? Yes. Um, but that variability is like a tiny percentage of like the total thing that you're measuring. And that's what you consider as normal. So when I first started making these, you know, muscle powered robots, I was frankly just like stunned by the amount of variability that I had <laughs> and the amount that the biologists that I talked to just completely accepted that. They were just like, well, of course, um, you know, cells are just different. They're just responding to a million different things in their environment. And you might think that you created all these 10 robots the same way, but there are probably minute differences in, you know, the media composition or the exact chemical that you infuse and like what time it was, or maybe this you know, tissue experienced more mechanical stress because you stretched it a little bit more when you put it around the skeleton. All of those little things, those processing things, which might not have made a huge difference in a synthetic uh, material, make a big difference in biology. And there's also a certain amount of stochasticity or like, you know, just statistical randomness or luck. Um, so I, won't, I don't want to say luck, but statistical randomness uh, that goes into the process. There might be, you know, four or five stable states that a cell can end up in. Um, and maybe that randomness that leads it to one versus another is something that we just haven't fully quantified and, and can't predict with reliability. So I think there are some things that I've done over time, for example, that stretching um, to help the cells align better. Um, those are things that I sort of discovered through this intensive design, build, test, iterative process, uh, where I discovered how to get them fairly reliably functioning along the same way. I still haven't gotten them to the point where, um, you know, they function in this with the same reliability that something made out of steel would happen. But that same thing that makes them, you know, sort of difficult to build with is the thing that's great about them. Because then I know when I have a final system, it's going to be extremely responsive to its environment. And it's going to, its output is going to tell me a lot about what its inputs were. And if I understand all of those rules and processes, maybe I can build something um, that has a fi far higher functional complexity than I could with synthetic materials. And just one last question. Uh, so where do you hope this research will lead in the future? And what is the most exciting thing that's going on in the current research for you? Yeah. Um, so in the future, again, my focus always returns to medical implants, because I think one of the biggest trends that we see in medicine today is this idea of precision medicine or personalized medicine. The fact that, you know, we all know from lived experience that a few different cancer patients can, can go into a clinic and get, you know, essentially the same therapy. And some people respond really well and some other people don't. Again, it goes back to this idea of biological variability. So rather than giving everyone the same medicine, you know, why not, you know, given an implant that can maybe generate the sort of uh, chemicals that they need in their body, um, but that senses that this person needs a little bit more at this time or that person doesn't. And, and this is sort of the... Uh, 
the field of cell therapy at present uh, really deals with this context a lot. If we place certain cells that in secrete insulin in a diabetic, for example, uh, they automatically could potentially regulate how much insulin they're secreting to the needs of that individual person at that time. So I think that's the most exciting context for me. Can I make implants that adapt to the needs of individual patients? Because that's what we need. We need to be able to, to meet people where they are and give them the care they need at the time they need it. Um, I think the most interesting thing that I'm doing right now um, is working towards using the skeletal muscle um, that I've developed in the lab as potentially an implant to replace skeletal muscle that's lost inside the body due to disease or damage. Um, this is something that I just think is a really meaningful cause. It matters a lot to me. I think mobility is something that a lot of us take for granted. And when you lose it, it can have a significant impact on the quality of your life. Um, and so, you know, a lot of a lot of people have tried to do this over the years, but I think we've understood a lot by building these robots about how do you tune it to respond to its environment and how do you generate really, really large forces from compact volumes. Um, and I think if I could you know, eventually do this successfully, you know, in animal trials and maybe one day in clinical trials, I would love to be able to contribute any small part to helping restore mobility to somebody who's lost it. That was mechanical engineer Ratu Rahman talking about biohybrid machines. Let us know what you thought about the episode with a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and check out our previous episodes at sciencefocus.com forward slash sciencefocuspodcast. The new issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now, and our cover feature looks at the missions planning on building a permanent base on the moon by 2030. As ever, there is loads more inside, so head over to the website to find out how to subscribe. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.